0: hello everyone my name is Justin Crowley and I'm Mike Smith and this is the murder project hello everyone and welcome to episode 56 of the murder project in this episode we are going to be doing the debrief part two on Hill, Monterino Resendez. And this should be an interesting one because if you tuned in last week, we kind of brought you through the story up to the point where Resendez starts committing the majority of his crime. And this week, we're gonna go ahead and take you through the end of the story. If you're new to the murder project, the debrief is where I sit down with my good friend and former police officer, Mike Smith, to discuss cases further. In the debrief, we discuss cases from both sides of the aisle theories that we might have, and anything that we think needs a second look. The debrief is an unscripted and off-the-cuff commentary about the cases that we are currently covering. The hope of the debrief is to break the cases down further, but in a relaxed environment with the true crime that we love, but also some laughter. So, let's get the episode started. Mike Smith in the house. Hey yay, yay. What's up, my man? I'm just ready to finish this story,
1: because... Now we're getting into oh, just all just heavier and heavier and heavier. He really starts building uh, a lot of momentum, and he's a scumbag before, but this is where
0: he truly shines all the way up. Oh, yeah. We're and, starting to get into the...
1: Until his miserable end.
0: Yes. We're starting to get into it on this one. Mm-hmm. And I, I was looking at some things between last episode and this episode that kind of went to his, uh, in the beginning, his earlier years, but... We're already past that, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go into any of that. But I would say that since we started with the identified, unidentified man and woman outside of San Antonio mm-hmm. in Bexar County, that, uh, and then we went to Michael White, and then after that, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of move on and go down the list. Mm-hmm. But I know in the first episode when we were talking about the identify, unidentified man and woman. One thing that I did read additionally was that when Resendez got into the argument with the identified, unidentified woman out in, I don't know why I can't say, why I always start out saying identified, unidentified. No telling, man. I just There's something in my brain that does not com- com- compute. <laughs> I just did it again.
1: It's long hours, buddy.
0: Yeah. It's like overload. But did were you saying that there was some sort of argument between the two that started that? whole deal out
1: um, with her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause she didn't respect him. Yeah. And then uh, one thing I did note, I didn't notice that, that he shot her multiple times. It wasn't just like a boom. Mm-hmm. Don't disrespect me. And then her boyfriend was the black magic guy. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, I get apparently from, from what I understand, the unidentified body was found and uh, she had multiple gunshot wounds. So uh, that's all that, that's all the additional information I had on that one. And then uh, with Michael White, he was actually found out in the yard of the house in San Antonio, also shot multiple times. Well, wait, wait, wait. And then, it, because in in the original one, it says that he was hit with a brick. So yeah. I wanted to bring that up because you and I were talking a second ago about the, you know, I mentioned in the first episode that there were a lot of stories about uh, Resendez himself. I even found articles that were under different names that matched up to him, but I wasn't able to clarify that that was one of his aliases. Mm -hmm. And so you and I were talking about before that, because in this one it says Michael White uh, was shot multiple times. And it's like, if you look at this one over here, he was hit in the head with a brick.
1: Wow, which one is it?
0: So I believe that the way that I've heard it several times is that he was, in fact, bludgeoned to death with a brick. That's what I have heard. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, in multiple sources but then if you go over to another source it's like
1: yeah that is a really unfortunate part of when you're looking at any type of true crime in the pastest of tenses because you just keep running into different stories in every podcast i listen to and every article is different oh yeah it could be a day it could be days definitely times definitely names it's always something
0: yeah because in this instance i brought two different articles and Mike and I were going to look to see if they can match up and they just don't.
1: No, they don't. I can already see, we already saw multiple dates. Yeah. Dates. By one or two days, yeah.
0: uh, How someone, you know, how they died, weapons that were used, like you know, or what I was going to say is cause of death, anything like that. It's like it gets
1: Yeah, because a really big part of Resendez's pathology is that he's taking advantage of his environment. Right. He's using what he has available. He's not going there, you know, with a knife and a hockey mask. He's not going there to, he's using what's available. He's very opportunistic. Right. And so that's why we spoke so much about Michael White's demise, because it implies that he didn't, you know, he wasn't sure he was going to do it yet till he found something to be offended by.
0: Exactly. And then he found something to kill him with, and then everything kind of added up together for him to go ahead and, and kill Michael White and his previous victims to this point, because what we're going to see when we move to the next murder, uh, Jesse Howell is that it is another, you know, it's six years later. Mm -hmm. And so before we move on, I just wanted to point that out because I know that if you've heard anything about this story before, as I mentioned in the last podcast, you may be thinking like, Hey, I don't think that matches up with what I've heard or something sounds a little off or just know that we've looked into it. And it's like, you know, it's a it's a flip of the coin as to which one you trust is right as being the most accurate, unless exactly. I I literally just read from a book. I guess mm-hmm. And we ain't got that kind of time. I don't right now. Not right. at all. Not even so, close. We are going to move on. We just wanted to point that out, but we are going to move on to Jesse Hal. Uh, this is a male, nineteen years old, and the date at which he was murdered is approximately. I'll just say mm-hmm. March twenty third. 1997 and And that's that's
1: nearly six whole years between incidents yeah for resendez yeah which we've talked about several times and even mentioned in the last episode i just don't see that happening but continue
0: and so the this murder and it's actually a this one's actually another double homicide in uh ocala florida it's going to be jesse Howe and wendy von Huben. And I probably did not say that right because there's probably some sort of a different way that you say that. Mm-hmm. But either way. Uh, Got to brush up on your regional diction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so starting with Wendy, supposedly the way that I understand it is that she was about 16 years old and. Oh, terrible. She was a runaway from Woodstock, Illinois and. She was with her quote-unquote traveling companion Jesse Hal, who was nineteen. So we have a sixteen-year-old female and nineteen-year-old male, and they were like, like I said, they were runaways, but they were found near railroad tracks, which will kind of go into this this whole story. And because of, I think, because of some of the confusion with the the data that we have and the the stories, we're not going to go into deep dives on each individual one. Also, because that would extend link to the podcast but we'll give you the we'll give you the kind of the cliff notes on each person but basically the way that the that this story goes out is that jesse was found you have jesse and wendy and jesse was found bludgeoned to death with a air hose coupling and left beside the railroad tracks and the way that we the way that i looked at this is as i think of an air hose coupling that may go on like an air hose that you air up like your tire width. Yeah. You know, your coupling that you're going to put like an air chuck on. Right. So that you can air... This is different because these are going to be air hose and like uh, a coupling from a, a rail car. That's right. A big, thick, like something, you know... A big gauge. Yeah, larger gauge uh, hose that's going to have a large cu- metal coupling on there. Your linkage is going to be pa- pound measured in pounds. Yeah, and it's... I mean, it's literally going to do some damage uh, when when you swing it. And I mean, obviously it did, but Wendy was, she, she died a different way than Jesse. So according to the research, she was raped, strangled, and then suffocated both manually, which means by the hands mm-hmm. and with duct tape and then buried in a, in a, in a shallow grave. See, I believe that's the first time he does that, that he buries, buries someone. Yeah that that's that's a strange
1: thing did that does that mean that he was ashamed of what he had done
0: i believe so because we're gonna see as things progress that he he gets into a pattern of where he starts to cover the victim's faces yeah so that's
1: that's just the first time that we really see it for the with the victims that are known because i strongly believe there there are many more but yeah he he sexually assaults her he strangles her um but he couldn't do it I mean, we can assume he couldn't do it all the way with his hands, so he tried to use duct tape too. And eventually, yep. she does expire, and then he buries her in a shallow grave, not not far from, I believe, where um, Jesse Howell was killed, and also not long after. Yeah, not, not long in like the grand scheme of like time spent with serial
0: killers. Yeah, it was all it was all pretty quick, but their their bodies were found in two different locations, like you mentioned. She was in a shallow grave. And then he was found about 100 yards from the railroad tracks, uh, wrapped in a blanket and a camouflage jacket.
1: Oh, so he he covered her, him up
0: too. But he was just wrapped in the blanket because it doesn't say that he was dug up or anything like that, and which I guess he could have been. But what I get from this is that I, I'm wondering if, as we'll see later on, he killed Jesse. Resendez killed Jesse with, with the the air hose and the, and the metal coupling. And I think it, at this point, this would be a situation where we have seen like him tie up the female victim. Mm-hmm. And I think he's trying to, to get, get set in his thoughts as to what he's going to do, because we're going to see later on in another situation of a double homicide with a sexual assault that the male dies first.
1: Right. Yeah. He takes out the person most capable of, of, of protecting them. Yep. Yep. Not that they can't.
0: Yeah. But just in he, his head, this is the way that he Right. That, this that is that how he, a predator works. Yeah.
1: If there's if they're both together, they're gonna overpower him. He needs to take out the one that he knows is gonna be the biggest threat if there's two of them. Mm-hmm. And
0: And then also he wants something from the female.
1: Right. and yeah, He's that's that that's that predatorial thing that we've talked about. Once he comes into America, he's a totally different person. He's he's selfish and controlling and has this really deep-seated, like, primal aggression that he's, you know, he's stalking these people. Yep. He's using items that he can find around, and he's taking what he wants from them on in every aspect to keep
0: that control. Exactly. And so, after this, after this incident happens where Jesse is killed, I'm sure that, that he either leaves her there or he moves the body off or moves her to a different location and then comes back mm-hmm. but either way I believe Jesse Hal is killed immediately after he surprises them and usually his his typical mo is to tell people that he doesn't want to hurt them that he just wants their money or their belongings right that he just needs something from them he gives them this kind of false sense of security even in this moment where all of these victims are yeah. probably panicked it's like a way to it's way it's a way to disarm somebody whose hackles are up yeah and then it's very deceptive he immediately attacks the male mm-hmm. and usually kills them and then like in this situation here he sexually assaults wendy and then he kills her like once he once he got what he wanted and then in most situations he also takes some sort of their belongings like we've talked about Mm -hmm. that he he goes through the things he takes what he wants and then he leaves the rest and then in this situation like you mentioned it's the first time he buried the body one of the victims and then in the other instance he also moves one of the bodies and covers it so He's making a little bit more of an effort, I think, to get away because the bodies are starting to pile up. And that's just what we know about. Mm -hmm. He could be thinking in his head at this point that instead of, you know, being four or five in, he could be 10 or 15 deep at this point. Mm -hmm. Because, as you mentioned, from San Antonio, 1991, to Florida, 1997, he's already basically changed up everything about because in... The unify, unidentified woman, we don't know about a sexual assault.
1: Right. Yeah, it was too decomposed to tell.
0: Right. We just know, kind of, that there was some sort of argument. She disrespected him and killed. He killed her. And that's all. Hit, that's all said by him. So we don't even know if that's true. Right. And then he kills her boyfriend. Went and found him. Went and found him and killed him. Then we fast forward back to San Antonio where he bludgeons. Michael White to death with a brick leaves his body and then all of a sudden 6 years later we have we have no idea what he's doing during this time but he immediately goes to the rape and the murder
1: yeah and and moving to like dual victims that are together presently
0: yeah it's also yeah.
1: the first time that happens yeah like they're together when he attacks them and he's he's confident enough by 1997 to take that head on, so I just fail to believe that he did nothing for almost six years.
0: I don't. I don't think so. And I know that during this time, there's probably going to be some scenarios where you can go back and look and find connections with him being probably caught by border patrol or INS or whatever you want to call it and deported back to Mexico because it was just so many, so many times. Right. But still, at this point they're not ever making that connection as far as Resendez and these crimes. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that this this is actually going to work out for in his benefit because he's going to be able to continue to do these things uh, for a while. And when we go from 91 to 97 without much, and then you're going to see from 97 until he's captured, it's pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. And so that's why Mike and I don't believe that that there was a a stop in in any of this but after this so we're march 23rd 1997 and then the next murder that they think they can tie to Resendez is going to be around july 5th of 1997 Mm -hmm. and he has gone from florida to colton california literally across the country yeah just from one side to the other he has probably been traveling. It, it probably wasn't just a straight shot to that location. So there is the opportunity for more crimes to have been committed in this time frame. Not, not necessarily be murder, but mm-hmm. anything else, yeah, the robberies, a, he's
1: the, a, he's a thief and a burglar as well.
0: Yeah. He could have been burglarizing homes between here and there. There's no telling, but Resendez wasn't charged with this murder, but he is considered the prime suspect in the case. And so, in this situation, we have a a drifter, it, which is he. He's described as named Roberto Castro. Uh, he's a male, fifty-four years old, and the story on him is there's not much to this actual death, but they say they claim that he was beaten to death with a piece of plywood in a rail yard. Which I would think that maybe instead of plywood, it would be something like two by four or something like plywood is not. You're not going to beat someone to death with a four by eight sheet of plywood.
1: No, you, I, I wouldn't think <laughs> some crazy upper body strength if you could.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. I'm thinking like a piece of scrap lumber could have been anything really like like that.
0: And then if you go over to the other notes, right, it mm-hmm. says that he was beat to death with a pipe. So I'm going to go pipe on this one. Wow. I'm going to take pipe. What's this? A script
1: piece of plywood (laughs) to a pipe that's just so vastly different it's crazy different and also and also i'd say like metal fittings pipes stuff like that would be something you'd find more often around like a rail yard like metal things that could last definitely not like scrap lumber
0: no that does not make any sense at all
1: that's just my it's just one man's opinion
0: just yeah just just an opinion but i'm gonna go with pipe on this one
1: and so with with roberto castro I believe it was, you know, obviously an opportunity Mm -hmm. and that he probably had something that he wanted. And so he just, he was alone. He took him out,
0: he grabbed what he wanted, jumped the next train, he's gone. Yep. Even, I think, even in the drifter community, I think good, solid, sound advice would be never show your cards. Yeah. I believe that. I would think that Resendez was probably hanging around this guy long enough to know Mm -hmm. he's got something I want. Exactly.
1: I think that, I think that's his MO. He's, he, Befriends these people, like we said before, he's got he's got enough social skills to rub elbows at least enough to learn what he wants from these people. Mm-hmm. He's and not and he's not just attacking people for nothing. Almost every case that we know he's responsible for, because with this one, he's just a prime suspect. Yep. There's something that he wanted from them, material or otherwise. So maybe this Roberto Castro had something that he was like, that's cool. I'll take that.
0: Let me go ahead and get that.
1: Yeah. yeah. Instead of trading him like whatever, you know, hobo currency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was like, well, instead, I'm just gonna grab this piece of pipe and just just whack you in the back of the head with it
0: and then kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a. I think that's a pretty solid uh, thought on that as far, with the information that we have. Yeah. Because uh, as we're about to learn, '97 is a big year. It's a pretty busy year for him. For
1: uh, for Resendez.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the next one. We're going to, we're going from Colton, California, cruising over to Lexington, Kentucky. And I think this one is the biggest one that a lot of people know about. Yes, I believe so. And we are going to be talking about Christopher Meyer and Holly Dunn. Holly Dunn. Right. And this happens, like I said, in Lexington, Kentucky. And this is August 29th, 1997.
1: So not even a whole. Two months later.
0: Yeah, this is just yeah this is a, this is a month and some change later. He's gone from California to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. He's crossing back across. He's going back across the country. Right, he's heading east. And so the story with this one is is that Christopher Meyer and Holly were both uh, students at the University of Kentucky. And the way that I read the story is that they were, it was like the second day of school. Like Mm -hmm. school had just got back. It's August 29th. So it's the second day of school. It's on a Thursday. School started on a Wednesday. You know, things are, things are busy. There's some back to school parties going on, Mm -hmm. people getting together. And so Chris and Holly go to this kind of back to school party. And while they're there, they, they think to themselves that it's not, you know, they've they been in a dating relationship and they're like, eh, it's not, this isn't that fun of a party. Yeah. So Holly, who's 20, Chris is 21, but they grab some beers and they put them in a backpack that I guess Christopher is carrying. Mm-hmm. And they decide that they are going to walk down the railroad tracks away from this house and... Crack a couple cold ones and just engage in conversation between themselves mm-hmm. and just kind of get away from the party. And so they go away for they walk away from the house down the railroad tracks. They sit down, they drink some beers. Holly doesn't recall how much time passes between them leaving the house and then them deciding to leave the railroad tracks where they're hanging out at mm-hmm. and talking. But anyways, enough time has passed uh, that. They decide they're going to go back to the party. So when they go back to the party, as they're walking next to the railroad tracks, Holly says that she passes a large electrical box. Right, is, is the way that that she describes it. And
1: yeah, this was a this was a, a detail that just haunted me the most. When yeah, I, when I first learned about this case, is what's hiding right behind that electrical box.
0: Yep. So right after they pass it. Holly says that she realizes that a man has stepped out from behind the electrical box and she is not sure if he was holding a screwdriver or an ice pick, but it's something that looks, you know, sim- similar to that. Yeah. If not one, then the other, perhaps. Enough to be threatening. Exactly. And then he gives them the line that he's that he wants to rob them. Mm-hmm. He wants their money and Holly tells him, she's like, we don't have any money. We're two broke college kids. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, okay, well, then he's going, he wants to go through their back because Christopher has his backpack. Right. And so he gives them, Christopher gives Resendez the backpack and Holly's trying to kind of explain to him that whatever he wants to take, he can take it. Yeah. Because she says that she is obviously panicked and she can tell from Chris that he's also panicked and they're both looking at each other trying to figure out what they can do, mm-hmm. you know, to get out of this situation. So Holly says that she offers Resendez uh, credit cards or bank cards or the keys to their car. Yeah, says, anything. Hey, yeah, yeah. My, my, our car is just right, just right up the street. Mm-hmm. You can have it. You can you can take whatever you want and you can keep it. And then it's at this time when Holly is trying to reason with Resendez that he notices that Resendez is tying Chris's hands behind his back. And she's like, okay, this might be going in a different direction. Oh, The horror. So he ties Chris's hands and feet, and then he ties Holly's hands and feet. Mm-hmm. And then he go so he goes he goes through the bag and then he walks off. And so when he walks off, they're now proned out on the they're laying on the ground. Right. And so Holly when she went to get because not only did he top their hands and feet, but he also gagged them. Mm-hmm. But she mentioned that she had stuck her tongue out while he was doing it so it wouldn't be tight, which is a smart move. That's very smart. So as soon as he walks off, she's able to push the gag out of her mouth, and she starts talking to Chris. And when she's talking to Chris, they're trying to, like, communicate with each other, like, how to get out of this situation. And there is there's some back and forth between the two. I think Holly can get her hands free, but not her feet. and Chris can get his hands or his feet, but not, you know, no, no, no. Holly could get her hands free, but not her feet. And Chris is still proned out on the ground. So she takes his, she takes his gag out and they start talking to each other. And Chris is telling her like, Hey, if you can get your feet free, you need to go. You need to get out of here. Great
1: advice. Yeah. He's like, if you can get out of here, you go save yourself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Get out of here. Save yourself. Let's, you know, if you can go, then you go. God, and, and uh, this time, they've lost sight of
1: Resendez. Yeah. Like, he walked off. It's, like, this is straight out of a horror movie.
0: Yeah, it's like 1 o'clock in the morning. It's yeah. pitch black outside. There's by the railroad tracks. By the railroad tracks. Not too many people cruising around. No. And so she is not sure how long the conversation lasts between the two of them. Which I would think in a situation like this, it's probably not long. You're, you're going to be able to have those conversations probably pretty quickly. It's
1: very rapid fire, I'm sure.
0: But in your brain, it's going to probably feel like time is standing still.
1: I mean, total panic. You're, that's, you know, we've often, we've talked about the OODA loop before. And like when you're in these high stress moments, those decision making skills that you do on an everyday basis, you don't even know you're doing are suddenly. They feel like very intentional. Every little thing that you do, every word that you say, every action you take. This is that's why I said it's, it didn't feel like a horror movie because you have no idea what's going on. All of a sudden, you're tied up on the ground. Yeah, and you thought this guy was going to rob you, and he did. For, but then
0: he still tied you up. You're like, what? What happens now? Let's get out of here. We're like, I can't. I'm tied up. Mm-hmm. And and Holly even is making this made made that remark saying like when they're laying on the ground, she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is really happening. Like this is, this is real Mm -hmm. and it's happening to us. And they're trying to figure out how to get out of this situation. But before they could, and that's why I think it might've been not long. no, Because before they can figure out what's going on, Holly says that she sees Resendez walking down the embankment to the railroad with a huge rock in his hand. Oh, Lord. And when I say rock, I mean a 50 plus pound rock.
1: Yeah. He, 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 I firmly believe that Resendez went to go find a weapon.
0: Yeah. And he did. Such, a, such a thing that he could, because we know that he's got the weapon in his hand, a, a screwdriver or an ice pick or something. But for some reason, he travels off and he picks up a rock. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Holly's probably thinking like, Something bad's about to happen.
1: I don't think you could see a situation like that and think it was normal. Mm-hmm. and Like it's s- going to be okay.
0: Something bad does happen because as soon as Resendez gets back up to them, he takes this rock that's 50 pounds plus, and he lifts it up kind of pretty high, as high as he can, probably over his head, and then he just drops the rock on Chris's head. That's all as far as the details in that go. Is that Holly? Holly says that she sees the rock hit Chris in the face, you know, on his head. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that because of a 50 pound rock, I'm sure it was pretty big. But after that is whenever he flips Holly over and starts to take her clothes off. And she's like, Oh, he's going to rape me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what his intention is. That's yeah. what he wants to do. And so she starts to fight back. Cause as, as we know, she's got the gag out of her mouth mm-hmm. and so she's screaming and he says, Hey, he, like he tells her to be quiet and he produces the weapon, which is strange because he just, you know, he could have stabbed Chris with this weapon, yeah. but he doesn't, he chooses to go get the rock and that, I don't understand that part of this whole, whole deal, but he tells her that it would be very easy for him to kill her. Mm-hmm. And so she realizes like, Oh, uh, you know. I don't know if it's going to benefit me to scream. And what she says is, is whatever is about to happen is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And at this time he takes the weapon and he stabs her in the neck with it. Right. And that's when she kind of goes silent and lets him do whatever he's going to do. And after he finishes, he proceeds to stab Holly several more times right and and he you know like this same kind of this same kind of deal where he stabs holly probably you know chokes her does something up but she says that through the trauma of the beating and the stabbing and all of this that she probably lost consciousness and that her her breathing was so shallow and labored that Mm. Resendez thought she was dead Mm -hmm. and so he leaves and then a little ways later, she wakes up and realizes she's like, "Oh, I di- I'm still alive." Yeah. Did,
1: uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he try to like hide her in like some bushes?
0: I'm not exactly sure, 100 percent on that.
1: I thought he, I thought he tried to like hide her.
0: I'm sure he did, based off of what we have from the other one.
1: Yeah. And then she, she woke up, and found her way.
0: Yeah, so she she walks back from the railroad tracks over into a neighborhood, mm-hmm. and there's a guy that's in his house that sees her and comes out to help her, brings brings her into his house. He says that she looks like a boxer after, like, a really bad fight, yeah. you know, that's, like, faces covered in blood, like, all the different things. And so he calls the police. The police show up. She's taken to the hospital. It takes her you know, several days to recover to the point where she kind of starts retelling what happened. Right. And then she asks her dad if Chris died, and he's like, yeah. And so she felt really bad about that.
1: I can't imagine how horrible.
0: And then, but she gets to, she gets the opportunity to tell her story and to kind of lay the groundwork for Resendez's eventual capture. That's right, yeah. And so far from the information that we have, Holly is Resendez's only survivor. That's correct. From yeah. from the crimes that he was he was later attached to and convicted of, she's the only person that lives to tell the story, which is amazing because I think after all of this, she ends up moving and I and I thought it was strange or not strange but coincidence that uh, she ends up residing in Evansville, Indiana, mm-hmm. which is where um, Vicky White and Casey White And Casey White end up uh, uh getting caught after their failed escape small world yeah yeah it's pretty crazy mhm but that that is not where the story for Resendez end, ends it actually goes on uh quite quite a bit but
1: yeah but there's a there's another break here like in his timeline mm-hmm. so he has like 97's like a very busy time for his horrible habits yep and then it's a jump to the, like, fall of 98, I believe. Yeah,
0: October 4th is what they say, 1998. And this victim, this victim's name is Leafy Mason. And it is a female, 87 years old, and he has gone from Lexington, Kentucky, to Hughes Springs, Texas. And this is, this is one of those, this is one of those situations where in Over a year, Mm -hmm. he's still been traveling around the country. He's still been doing his thing, but this is the next murder that they can kind of. Yes, committed. Yeah, it's his. It's his M.O. And so, in in Hughes Springs, Texas, he finds Leafy Mason, and this is another situation where he. She lives close to the railroad tracks. He stalks her. You know, gets gets a good feel of what she's doing. That she is obviously an older female, eighty seven years old. Um, She's by herself. Yeah, lives alone. That's the big one. Yep. And she's going. This is going to be, for lack of a better term, this is going to be an easy target for him. And it uh, absolutely would be. Uh,
1: And he sneaks in her window, and then I believe she is bludgeoned to death with her an antique. Fire iron.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. This, uh, which also goes again with his MO. He, I don't think that he knows what he's going to find in this house. No. He just knows that it's going to be an easy target. Well, you know he's already armed. Mm-hmm. We know he's capable of, of you know, stabbing somebody,
1: having this all, or ice pick, or screwdriver, or whatever it is that he's carrying, but that's not his MO. His MO is to use what's lying around. Yep. Bricks, rocks
0: hoses antique tire fire iron yeah and yeah an antique fire iron like all of these different things so he goes into her house he kills her Uh, there's no mention of sexual assault in this one so you can kind of see that his his motives change depending on the person that not everything that he does in one instance, he will do in another. Right. He will change it depending on the person that he is attacking, which which we mentioned in the first episode. But in this situation, they figure out that when Resendez goes into people's houses and he stalks them and he attacks them, he hangs out in the house for a while. That's right. He will end. He ends up. In, in situations like this, he will go through their entire house. Mm-hmm. He will search through their belongings. He will look for things to take. He will eat the their food. food while he's at their house, right out of the refrigerator. Yeah, and then just leave the trash on the counter. Mm-hmm. And it's it is stated that he liked to go for like fruits and things like that, mm-hmm. but he would leave the trash on the counter, so it was easy for the police to to tell like. This is probably from the killer. Yeah. Uh, as That's he's like ransacking that. the house, he got yeah, in your face. Look what I did. Yeah. He got he got hungry. Mm-hmm. Had him some snacks, and then went on about his business. And it's 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 one of those situations where it doesn't seem like at first that is a big deal, but it's going to be something they can use later on to start right. tying these things. You know, right. together. They're just stacking these little stones, trying to build this case. Yeah, and I mean, look at look at how hard this would be so far. I mean, we're talking San Antonio, we're talking Florida, we're talking California, Kentucky. Now we're in Texas. And Texas is so huge.
1: You know, a murder on one side we're of the state. We're
0: back in Texas, I should say.
1: Right, yeah. A murder on one side of the state to the other, you know, hundreds of miles of difference. Those aren't things you link together right away, Mm-mm. no matter what, let alone... Literally hopping all over the country.
0: Yep, and in, then, a, in
1: a time where analog crime investigation is the primary source of investigation,
0: absolutely. And by the time that something else we need to think about is by the time these bodies are found, he's gone. Oh, for days. He's not hanging out at the homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. He's not at the Salvation Army in the town that he committed this murder in. He's gone. He may have been there before. Mm -hmm. He may have been there days before, but you also have to remember that in situations like that, drifters come and they go. Mm -hmm. And the bigger town, the bigger the town that you're in, the more people will come and go. That's right. The less likely it is for someone to be noticed. You're just like everybody else passing through town. And so for him, it works out great because he can, he has the availability to hop a train car And head out of town. He's good at it now. Oh he's he's very good at it now.
1: Yeah, this is he's he's perfected it for all intents and purposes. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he's looking for. This is a type of predator who picks a target. He can study it for a very short period of time and know that he's that's already what he's looking for.
0: Yeah. This will be this this will be a good take. Mm -hmm. Like or this will be a good at at least a good opportunity for him. Mm Mm-hmm. So then we're going to jump ahead about two months, uh, around December 10th, 1998, and all of a sudden, Resendez is in Carl, Georgia.
1: So two months later, yeah. two months and change.
0: Two months and change. Now he's gone from Texas to Georgia, and there's no telling what what happens between here and there. But his next vic- victim is Fanny Byers, also another female, 81 years old. Mm-hmm. And so in this situation, he has two elderly females that he is attacking. And this murder kind is kind of a, a, a mirror image of the one previous. So he is going to kind of stalk Fanny. And he is going to see also 81-year-old female. She's by herself. And he is going to go into her house and do the same thing that he did to leafy mason except this time he's going to use what i've i've heard it referred to as an axe or hammer but the way that i understand it is that he used a pickaxe that he found at her house oh god uh to kill her and not only did he he kill her with the pickaxe from what i understand he left it embedded in her body Oh wow! Like it was still stuck in her when they found her. That's horrible. And if you go to if if you use now now if we switch, that's right. I was about to mention it myself. This, uh, this one's got a bit of a different story. Yeah, uh, it is a, a tire iron or tire rim. It says ti- yeah. It says tire rim, and
1: um, I mean, I don't. You're not leaving that embedded in somebody's body unless. You're substantially stronger than the average person.
0: Mm-hmm. But either way, she's killed with a unknown weapon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say about that. With a blunt or sharp weapon. Yeah. <laughs> According
1: to these sources, it could be either it one. Could be either one. But yeah, I believe I also heard that she was left with the like a pickaxe or like a maul.
0: Yeah, type deal stuff. Yeah. yeah, that that it that would that was used in this. But she also lived near uh, the railroad tracks, CN- CSX Transportation Railroad tracks, to be exact. And uh, later on, it w- what was strange is that in this situation, Resendez does the same thing. He goes through her house. He takes item that he wants. After after the murder has been committed, he takes the item, items that he wants, and then, boom, he's gone. And then later on, there was a Lexington couple that was charged with Fannie Byer's murder. And it was only until Resendez admitted that he had killed her that the other two were were set free. I
1: didn't know that part.
0: It was kind of a, uh, that the authorities nabbed the wrong folks. But you also have to think that Resendez is going to have, now I'm not making excuses for any sort of shoddy police work or people that gave confessions that maybe shouldn't have or whatever the scenario is. But this goes back to Resendez being in Georgia, which is the area that he has no ties to. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's a murder and then boom, he's gone. Mm-hmm. And then the police are trying to p- piece all these things together and they end up coming across two unfortunate individuals that were, that, that took the fall for this. And they, they had some type of link to it, but just not the right one. Right. Exactly. So now move on to the next one. Uh, this is going to be Claudia Benton, female, 39 years old. And this happens in December 17th of 1998. So just seven days Wow. later. Or just a week later. Yeah, just one week later. And he's back in Texas. West University plays Texas. So he is, he is moving back and forth very effectively because he's already back in Texas, but he's not in the same spot. He's in a different part of Texas. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, Claudia Benton, who is a physician, was at her home. And the way that I understand you know, the, the details on this one is that she was at her home by herself. And she had a family, and she had a daughter, I believe. Mm-hmm. And her husband... Claudia's husband took the daughter to go visit relatives for the holidays. Right. And Claudia could not go because she had to work. Right. And so instead of everybody kind of missing out on the family gathering, Claudia's husband and child went to the family gathering. And this is when Resendez made his entry into her home. And they also live not too far away from railroad tracks, which obviously, mm-hmm. but what happens is, is that Resendez goes into Claudia's home and he is going in there. I'm sure with the same purpose as that he had in the previous deaths of the elderly victims, right? To, to rob the home. But when he goes into the house, he beats Claudia and stabs her repeatedly and then he he rapes her and then she is bludgeoned repeatedly with a statue that was found inside the home
1: another opportunity weapon because i don't ever remember reading that the stabbing weapon was found
0: right and just they know that the statue tied into when when the when the police showed up to do to investigate the crime they found the blunt object they believed to be the statue that was used in her death, but there was also other things. She was beaten, she was stabbed, she was sexually assaulted, and all of these things take place while her husband and child are not at the residence. Ugh. And I would say thank goodness, but I also think that if that if her husband would have been there, if yeah. things would have been different, he probably wouldn't have...
1: He wouldn't have seen it as such a soft target.
0: Yeah, yeah and gone no. gone into the house.
1: I've thought the same thing, and there's no way you can think it on one direction or the other without feeling just bad.
0: Yep. Yeah. And in this scenario, Resendez steals Claudius' Jeep, and he drives it to San Antonio.
1: Yeah, and, and that's interesting because that's a place he's visited many times, and isn't it also a big junction for railroad, mm-hmm. uh, for the rail yards
0: throughout yeah. Yeah, not just the Southwest, but all of America. It's a hub, I believe. Yeah, and so this is this is kind of the first time that we're seeing him use a. I don't know if train schedules, departures, arrivals, whatever, where the train was going, but for some reason in this scenario, Resendez decides to steal his victim's vehicle and then drive it to a separate destination. But he doesn't stay in the vehicle for a long period of time. What he does is he literally steals the vehicle, drives it to San Antonio, which is just a few hours away. Mm -hmm. He dumps the vehicle by a rail yard. Hops a train. Hops a train. And he's gone. Uh, But later on, Resendez's fingerprints would be found inside the Jeep. That's right. And they issue a, a warrant for his arrest. But... That's not that's not the end of the story, because they're still going to have like like as we've talked about, they're still going to have a hard time matching up fingerprints to who this man actually is. Right. And like what he is what he is out there doing. Moving on, we have Norman Cernick. Yes,
1: Norman and uh, Karen Cernick.
0: Cernick, Yes. Forty six and forty seven male and female. Uh, this is going to be May 2nd of 1999. So after this, after the death of Claudia, either there was a cool-off period. Five months. For five months, or he is just out doing his thing and nobody was ever er, ever able to kind of tie this together. But I also think that in this scenario, with it being wintertime, that that would have been an opportunity for him to go home. That's right. Yeah, like we talked about in the first episode, we do know
1: he does have family and dare I say friends back where he's from in Mexico. So he's like, "Mm, it's getting cold. Time to dip. Time to head home. Got what I need. Maybe, maybe that's the reason he had a schedule to keep something emboldened him to steal that car. Yeah. That's a huge new addition to his MO. Yep. So it had to be something like that. In my opinion, he was like, Oh man, I'm running behind. I'm supposed to be home already. Or I only got X number of time to get to my destination. I have to make up time and that's how he would do it.
0: Yeah. And he would have no idea how long it would take before Claudia's body is discovered. He would have no idea how long it would be before there was a Bolo out on the Jeep. Mm -hmm. After they notice that it's gone, it's going to be put out to everybody. This is a murder victim. The vehicle's gone. That's going to be something that's sitting around. But I bet he knew that he would also be gone before they found him in it. Yep. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm saying. He was, he had that Jeep and then he was, at his destination, and then he was gone. Mm-hmm. So on May 2nd, he shows up in Weimar, Texas. That's how you say it? What were you thinking?
1: Like a longer A, like Weimar?
0: Weimar? Weimar?
1: I mean, I don't know. I think I'm think trust, i trusting you. You're the local. I'm the import. Yeah,
0: I think it's Weimar. Okay. Uh, but he runs across Norman and Karen at their home, which they live in a parsonage at a church. So. Norman is the pastor is the pastor of the church. It's terrible. And he scouts them out. And for whatever reason, he decides that they're going to be his next victim. And he enters their house and kills both of them supposedly (laughs) with a sledgehammer. And so I know that the use of hammer has been in several of the kind of different uh, murders that have gone on so far but he does the same thing he goes into the house he kills norman and karen they're in their you know mid and mid to late 40s and goes to their house takes what he wants and then he steals their wh- wh- the only thing i have is that it was a red mazda and
1: he, so so he killed him with a sledgehammer
0: that yeah for these two what i believe is that he or what is stated is that he kills them with a sledgehammer.
1: Okay, just yep. making sure. Yeah, because I mean, like you were saying, we. Uh, I just I thought that we'd oh, speak about it more because I know it says sledgehammer, and I believe that'd be a weapon easily you could use to kill somebody. But often, you know, people mistake tools. You know, yeah. like a sledgehammer. A sledgehammer to me means it's, it requires two hands to swing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Instead of like maybe like a mini sledge or something. Yeah. But either way, what what happens with this one and it's also terrible is that someone at the church notices that Norman has not shown up mm-hmm. to church to conduct the service that was supposed to be going on at the church. Oh
1: God, and went to go look for him. So
0: a guy's like, hey, I'll go I'll run over to his house and see, you know, something mm-hmm. happens. And they're not in and this is really horrible
1: because neither uh Norman nor Karen are that old. Right. They're, not, they're older than me, but they're not that old. No. I mean, he was bold enough. I mean, that he's attacking, and neither was, of course, Christopher Meyer or Holly Dunn, but still bold. It's in their home. There's two of them. I think that's the first time that happened. See, Christopher Meyer and Holly Dunn being outside by the railroad tracks. He went into these people's home, the parsonage of this church, to
0: right. go get
1: them both. That's just another step further that he's sh- he's showing how bold he is, how comfortable he is in, in his skill set as a predator.
0: Yeah, it's yeah he's getting he, he's getting a little bit more comfortable and, and too too comfortable because same same type situation he steals their vehicle. Well, let's yeah let's let's rewind. So the the gentleman at the church that went to look that obviously finds them mm-hmm. and he sees this gruesome crime scene uh you know two beloved people of their church murdered inside their home, also located on the church property. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he notices that their their car is missing. And several weeks later they would find this vehicle once again in San Antonio. And the fingerprints in the car, this is this is one of those big moments because right. the fingerprints that they lifted from the Mazda were linked to the fingerprints that were lifted from claudia's jeep yep also found in the you know then the same area san antonio yeah and they were able to say like okay the, like we've got a serial killer here right obviously or some sort of you know i don't know if they tied together that he was a serial killer yet but we have three victims two different towns both vehicles found in San Antonio. Yeah, The guy's gone. So they're probably thinking there's some sort of link back to San Antonio. Mm-hmm. But they haven't tied it all together yet. They have the fingerprints that tie these three murders together, mm-hmm. but they're, they haven't tied it all together yet. And moving on to the next month, June 4th, 1999, we have Noemi Dominguez, and now Resendez is... In Houston, Texas. And for whatever reason. Resendez chooses to go to Houston, Texas. He ends up finding. His next victim. Noemi. And. yes, yeah, it's very sad. She's.
1: I believe she's an elementary school teacher.
0: Yep. 26 years old. And. She is a. A school teacher in the Houston area. And. It was. Or in. The, for Houston Independent School District. But. For whatever reason. Resendez picks her as his next victim and he breaks into her residence as well and he kills her also, it says, with a pickaxe. Hmm. And so based on the kind of shoddy articles that are floating about, this could be your situation where the person was killed with a pickaxe and it was left kind of like impaled into the body um, or it could have been, you know, Fannie Byer's. At this point, it's one of those things where right, yeah. the the information is so contradic- contradictory, and Mike and I have talked about this, and we're going to go ahead and run with the story, but it, it's very frustrating for us because we want to get the facts right, mm-hmm. but everything that we read points us in a different direction as to what that information is yeah i mean it's pretty frustrating
1: not to mention with the amount of links they have i mean even even the google research is just becoming so time consuming yeah everything's a link to the article before yeah it's it's, crazy
0: it's like the way that you double verify triple verify something Mm -hmm. is three different articles but if you dig down into it it all comes from one source you can't you can't get a multi multi multi-source like article anymore (laughs) it's all like yeah we got we got five different articles on this thing oh it all ties back to one source you got to pay for that skill set yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and so this just know this is something that's very frustrating to Mike and I, but we're already deep into this mm-hmm. story, so we are just going to have to proceed. So
1: when uh, when we're looking at this and he, he chooses, you know, mean Dominguez to be his victim, Houston, Texas is is not a small area mm. and not a very rural large. area, very urban. I mean, it has outlying neighborhoods and stuff, and I imagine there's a good deal of railroad track that also runs through Houston. So it's yeah. close to a port, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of railroad tracks coming out of that direction. I believe Houston is also a hub because of the the Gulf. Yep. Yeah, I know I actually know somebody that uh, moved down that moved down that direction to work in for, he worked for the railroad, mm-hmm. so and he moved down there because there was a lot more work. And so the same scenario repeats itself. Noemi is killed and he goes through her things, steals whatever he can hops in her Honda Civic and takes off. But before I get to that, he travels about 85 miles west of, of Houston mm-hmm. in Dubina, Texas. And this also, it's I, th- I believe it's Fayette County, Texas, if I got the name wrong. But a lot of these little small towns have interesting names. So I could be messing those up as well. But in... Dubina, Texas, he comes across a female named Josephine. Josephine Convica. Convica, yeah. Same day. This is this is also this is the same day that, oh, is that right that I no didn't notice that. Yeah, that no women is killed. Yeah. He's 85 miles, probably still in her Honda Civic. Yes. I would guess that for sure. And he comes across Josephine, female, 73 years old, and he uses the same pickaxe. So it wouldn't have been the one he left with,
1: with Noemi Dominguez. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, great. So. so same pickaxe he uses to kill Noemi and he uses to kill Josephine.
1: That's crazy. Pickaxe is very unwieldy. Yeah. And but this is this is multiple victims have been killed with this, and now he's taking it with him. Just another step of boldness. Now he's k- taking the murder weapon with him on the road that's like that's something he's never done that we know about of course we don't know for sure but that's very bold another another thing that like like how comfortable he's becoming not only is he stealing her ride but he's also
0: taking a pickaxe which is not is an unwieldy tool even when you're using it for its proper use and a pickaxe covered in blood hanging out in the passenger seat of a car that's stolen from a person who's been murdered gonna be pretty noticeable if you get pulled over with that mm-hmm. you're, like, gonna, you're gonna want to put that in the trunk he is throwing all caution to the wind yeah and he is just and in and the re and, and the thing is about Josephine's death is that there's nothing as far as as the research goes as to say why he did this or why why he chose to drive that direction kill her use the same pickaxe, Or even a different weapon. It doesn't matter. The pickaxe is is not relevant to the fact that he showed up and murdered this woman. But it could be because he is thinking to himself that he needs a new car. Like he needs to switch cars. Mm -hmm. Like He doesn't want to be in the same car for too long. So he drives a little ways. He finds his next victim. He tries to steal Josephine's car, but he can't find the keys. So basically this murder could be for nothing. So we get to a... Yeah, you, you have some? Yeah,
1: there's a really interesting part here that I. So I'm not too familiar with how to say these names, but I did look up a bunch of these locations. Dubina, Texas is only miles from Weimar. So know. Josephine Convica was killed with the same pickaxe used to kill Noemi Dominguez in Houston. But Dubina, Texas, uh, in the farmhouse where Convica lived, is miles from Weimar where the Cyernics were killed. That's crazy. It's all kind of coming back full circle. Very centralized right there in this, what I imagine is Southeast Texas.
0: Yeah. Just rural areas. Yeah. Yeah. Dubina and Weimar, of course, not Houston, but rural areas where, I I mean, I guess he felt some sort of comfort going back to that area. All these hubs that probably
1: connect to where he's trying to get to either heading further out into the United States or heading back to Mexico. But yeah, the I mean, this just goes to show you like how much he's kind of derailing here. Yeah. He's carrying the murder weapon with him. He's staying considerably more local than any of his act incidents before.
0: Yeah. We, we, in, in saying that what we, what we mean is like a murder in Florida, a, a, the next one in California, California right? the next one in Kentucky, like he's moving around, and then as we're kind of getting through these, they're starting to become closer and closer together. Right, Texas, Texas, Texas. Yeah. I mean, he's on. He's all like he, He's
1: kind of. How kinda, far is is uh Dubina from Houston? Did you say eighty five miles.
0: Yeah, it's about eighty five miles.
1: Yeah, just eighty five miles west of of Houston. Yeah. yeah so. so.
0: He's staying in these areas, and maybe he went back to an area like that because he thought he could find a vehicle that he could take, or mm-hmm. there was some reason that he did that specifically. It's on the way to San Antonio, if you look at it on a map.
2: Yeah. And so we know San Antonio is well, where
0: two different vehicles have been dumped, right? But if he continues on that route, would he be heading towards Del Rio? Del Rio.
1: Yeah, it's just just keep going west from yep. Houston through so San Antonio.
0: So it's a straight shot. So because the reason I bring that up is because uh, later on, after the after Noemi and Josephine are killed, Noemi's Honda Civic is discovered by a, tra- a state trooper at the international bridge in Del Rio, Texas.
1: So he took the car all the way across, like southern Texas, yep, to Del Rio, which is on the border.
0: Yep, it's a border town. This international bridge in Del Rio, Texas, I have actually been there many a time because just across. The border from Del Rio is Acuna, Mexico. That's right. Yeah, I just saw that. And so if you're you're from anywhere around that area, especially like where I was from, uh, Del Rio is a destination for high school slash college kids because Mm -hmm. Acuna is just a party town, border town. Oh, uh, you know that song by George Strait, Blame It on Mexico? That's right. Okay, so the way that song starts out is in a bar in Acuna called Mont Crosby's. That's right. Same place. Oh, wow. It's all the same area. I've eaten at Mott Crosby's before. I was about to ask, have you been there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, been there. And then they had a really cool... Uh, what were you we up to there? Being very, um, like... Uh, just looking for crafts. Crafts? Yeah. Yeah. Different. Uh, just different things. Mm-hmm. Not anything else.
1: No, nothing illicit, I imagine.
0: mm No, cool, no, no. Cool,
1: cool, 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 cool. Carry on, sorry.
0: Yeah, they had this really cool... Um, kind of concert areas called the Corona club. And if you've ever seen the movie Desperado, mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, Antonio Banderas. So in that, in that bar scene where they get into that big shootout, mm-hmm. and there's that large wooden bar area. That's actually in the Corona club in Acuna. Oh, that wow. scene was shot in that bar. been there many times.
1: Yeah. I still don't like the part that those Ruger's fit in his sleeves. I know, but jacket was too well fitted. It's too tight. Yeah,
0: you could have never got it. I mean, great it, movie, it came guys. out too easily. Yeah. Great movie, guys. Yeah. Very unrealistic. And, and so they used to have a bunch of concerts there and a lot of, you know, just let the good times roll. Mm-hmm. And I got to see uh, Robert O'Keefe and Cross Canadian Ragweed there on the same night, which is pretty amazing because, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about this is in the late 90s. Yeah. So Robert O'Keefe's already pretty big. Across canadian ragweeds up and coming. That's right. And I got to see him at the same time.
1: Holy cow. And nothing illicit was happening. No. No. Not at all. Nice. just nice. Keeping it clean. I like that. Just some kids, good kids having a good time. That's right. Enjoying the heat with no iced beverages of any kind. No. Just water. Just
0: water and... Tepid, tepid water. And like virgin daiquiris, things like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, sorry. I had a little bit, but <clears throat>
1: nobody... Nobody ever brings up a Mexico story when they were drinking tepid water.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. We had we had a lot of good times there. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But anyways, mm-hmm. so right there on the border in Del Rio, Noemi's car is found. And they're picking up on at this point in time, they're picking up on what's going down. Right. Everything's starting to get tied back together a little better. They're starting to figure out and and put together, Resendez and his aliases match with his fingerprints. If you go back to the first episode we did, where Mike was talking about how investigators, state trooper, Texas Rangers, yeah, everybody's kind of like getting involved in this, and they're actually reaching out to places that have murders with similar M.O.s, saying. See if you can match these fingerprints mm-hmm. to any evidence you might have found or, you know, whatever. And it's it's starting to kind of add up. And they're figuring out that the same person is responsible for a lot of these murders. Now, they don't know to what extent just yet. Right. But they're definitely getting into it. And that'll kind of take us to our our last pair of murders before this whole thing falls apart.
1: Right. So here's... One more tidbit before you jump into the deets. He, that car, <clears throat> excuse me, Noemi Dominguez's vehicle is found in Del Rio. It's a border town, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is just, what, 11 days later when this next incident occurs? Right. But he didn't go to Mexico. and if
0: Or if he did, it was for a very short
1: period of exactly, time. Exactly, because this actually occurs in Gorham, Illinois. Yeah. That's very much farther north, almost all the way north. Yeah, in that part of America,
0: you're going. Yeah, you, from Del Rio to Gorham, Illinois, you're you're t- probably what twenty hours away, if if I had to guess.
1: I'm actually gonna look it up right now because I'm. I just found myself deeply curious as well. All right, check it out. Sixteen hours. I was close. Sixteen hours and four minutes, or sixteen hour and fifty eight, but it's got tolls.
0: Oh, man, you're going to skip those. You're going to skip those. Well, you're definitely going to skip them on the but train. still, I mean, 16 hours, that's
1: on a highway, mm-hmm. not a train. A train, you're going to double that. Easy. Because a lot of places trains can't do but, you know, 40, 50.
0: Yep. Or if they get in an open area, I think they can get up to, like, 60 or 70 is what one of my buddies was telling me. But you also have to consider how many times they have to slow down right, when they're coming through different areas. And then also, you also have to consider going from let's say del rio up to illinois how how many times those trains could have been oh how many how many had to jump to get there Right. It couldn't um, have been the same one because they're gonna be switching trains as the right as they're going through destination points. So you're right. I only bring that up to say that I don't believe
1: he got there in a day. I believe his trip to Gorham took several days. Yeah, at minimum. Right. And that we may not even know if that was his destination, of course. That's just where this next incident took place. Go ahead, man.
0: Yeah. But so once he gets to Gorham, Illinois, he stalks out another person. Uh this this person is George Morber. And he's a male. He's eighty years old, and he is. He seems to be by himself. He lives by. He. I know he does live by himself, and that's why I think Resendez kind of went after him mm-hmm. because he's a older gentleman. He lives in a. I believe he lived in a trailer house or something to that nature. Yeah, and by himself, barely a hundred yards. From Um, the railroad tracks. Yeah, right. That that he's just jumping off of, fresh off this, you know, this kind of murder spree that he's been going on. I would definitely say spree. Probably feels like he, you know, had a close one, ends up dumping a car in Del Rio, hops back on a train, he's back, but he's still in the United States. There was no cool off period where he goes into Mexico and lays low. Mm -hmm. He immediately turns around and heads back out and he ends up at George Morber's house and. He goes into the house. He's going to rob George Morber and kind of do the same same type of situations. He goes into George's house. Actually, what I remember from this one is that he goes into his house after he sees George leave in his pickup mm-hmm. and. Thinks that this is an opportunity for him to be able to break into the house while he's gone. Right. What he doesn't realize is that George is just on his way to pick up a paper, and he comes right back home. And when he comes home, he walks into his house. George walks into his house and catches Resendez in the act of burglarizing his home. Right. And it's it's not hard for Resendez to to kind of get control of the situation because he has found. George's shotgun inside the house. Right. Free firearm. So he takes George and ties him up to a chair in his house and he shoots him in the head with a shotgun and kills him. Mm -hmm. And while he's finishing up, uh, burglarizing the house, George's daughter, Caroline Frederick, who's 52, shows up to the house because she is scheduled to be there to help him she She helps him clean up his place, mm-hmm. and when she stumbles across this incident happening, she becomes collateral damage to Ugh. the the unfortunate murder of her father, and then she is also going to be a victim you know in the same you know because yeah. of because of the circumstances, but for some reason he does not shoot Caroline That's with right, the yeah. shotgun he uses like the butt of the gun to bludgeon her to death uh, in the same home. I do find that
1: very odd. That in, First of all, that he shot uh, George Marber anyway. Because most of the time, with the exception of his very first two victims, yeah, who were unidentified and only known because he said it was him, to know that he did this. Is- I mean, obviously, breaking into the home before Mr. Marber gets there, He finds the shotgun. He's like, great, this was a good deal. I got a free firearm out of it. Mr. Morber comes home. He's like, oh, crap, but he's not going to have a hard time overpowering him. Mm -hmm. And he does. And then he, instead of bludgeoning him or killing him in a way that is more fitting to his MO, from what we know about his past, he instead uses the firearm for its intended purpose. But not, again, when his daughter shows up, right, Caroline Frederick.
0: And I was kind of wondering, I was like, I wonder if it was like like an older style, like breakover, single shot. You know, it had like a load uh, a round loaded into it, and he's like, didn't know where the rest of the didn't rounds know where were. where the rest were, yeah. When and he so did, he, he didn't, didn't check his little
1: hunting vest hanging in the closet.
0: Yeah, so when Caroline shows up, he just takes it and probably swings it like a baseball bat. Yeah, I mean, and buttstocks of these weapons...
1: Uh, Especially the older ones. They're. I mean, even newer ones, they're devastating. Yeah. And people don't realize about how badly... I mean, of course, there are people that do know, but the buttstock of the weapon used in a butt stroke, yes, that's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> when you use the weapon to club somebody in the appropriate way, it's devastating. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at easily fracturing bones. Um, I mean, just absolutely turning meat into, and turning flesh into hamburger.
0: Yeah, tenderizing meat. Yeah, yeah and, for and, real. I mean, and it works because she dies. Yeah. And... That that's kind of where the where his story kind of ends. And the way that we'll kind of wrap this all up, because, you know, you could go into probably another podcast just on putting all the evidence together. I was thinking that getting getting Resendez to to the point where they know exactly who he is. And just to be honest with you guys, just the information and the research that I've done on this specific case uh if we would have known how kind of contradictory the evidence was i would have gone to a single source like an actual book Mm -hmm. and pulled the details out of it and and gone that that route which if we ever come across something like this again that has so many moving parts yeah uh that's the direction that we'll go in Mm -hmm. instead of kind of uh that relying on articles yeah, how I would word it is I definitely would have saved a case like this for a slower time of the year work wise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Where we had a little bit more time to look into it. Yeah. And and kind of uh fact check some of this stuff because it, it didn't end up working out in all areas. But the the gist of this story is true. Mm-hmm. The things that the people that died, the the were the locations close enough on the dates. hmm Iffy on the weapons. Yes. But for the majority of the content for this, it is correct. That's right. It, there's just a few things that I wish that we could have squared away as far as the details go. And that's okay. You know, you live and you learn. This was a big case. We we both wanted to do something like this just because we both get in here together. We can talk through it. It's a long case. and But, you know, if you go back to even something like Tom Brown, mm-hmm. I mean, that was months. That yes. was months of research. That, that went into us doing the Tom Brown case, and this could have easily been one of those ones that was similar to that. Uh-huh. I agree. But uh, either way, what ends up happening with Resendez is, is that they are able to using fingerprints and investigating several, you know, different crimes, sending out bulletins to you know police agencies all across the nation, stating, "Do any of the deaths that you have in your town close to railroad tracks?" meet any of this criteria exactly and they were able to to tie enough murders together using fingerprints combining aliases getting all the i mean really doing a lot of legwork and basically Resendez ends up on the fbi's most wanted list that's right and all the texas rangers which are a branch of the department of public safety uh, state texas state troopers They're also looking for Resendez because he's got a pretty significant body count in Texas. He does, yeah. And so they're also looking for him. And one of the resources that they go to is Resendez's sister. And I believe her name is Manuela. I believe that's correct, yeah. And they use Manuela to try to get to Resendez. And she is a little hesitant at first because she does not want to turn her brother over to The police. Yeah, I think initially
1: she's just in denial. Like anybody would be. Yeah. And then they're like, No, we know it's him. We found fingerprints, you know, or whatever proof they decided to offer. And she was still like,
0: No way. No way. Yeah. And he's so nice. Yeah. Exactly. Like we talked about in the first one. He's got this. He he it's two different lifestyles going on. Mm -hmm. He has everybody that knows and loves him is completely confused about the information that they're hearing about him because it doesn't match up with the person that they know is, you know, Resendez, they're like, no, nah, there's no way, there's no way he would do something like that. But a Texas State Tro- or a Texas Ranger named Drew Carter actually convinces Manuela to talk to Resendez and convince him to turn himself in because they know that this is only going to end one of two ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's either going to end up in jail or he's going to end up dead. Right. I mean, both will both will come about, but they don't want. Resendez to kill anybody else. And then Manuela basically says, comes to the realization that if her brother is not killed by the police while he's on the run, he is going to continue to kill other people. That's right. And so she convinces Resendez to turn himself in, in the United States, because after the Illinois, the Gorham Illinois killing, he leaves the United States Uh and goes back to Mexico. Right. Right. And she basically tells them, like, the Mexican authorities are looking for you. Yeah. What's going to happen if they find you? You're going to die. You're going to die. If you come back into the United States and you get into some sort of situation with the authorities over here, they might kill you. Mm -hmm. But I've talked to this Texas Ranger named Drew Carter, and he says that if we arrange your surrender, he will guarantee me that nothing will happen to you Mm -hmm. and you will safely be taken into custody. And basically what happens is, is that on a a bridge connecting El Paso, Texas, with Juarez, Mexico, mm-hmm. Resendez does meet with his sister, who is said to have been accompanied by a spiritual guide, and the Texas Rangers, and they take Resendez into custody. And once they get him into custody, he kind of gives... Right, he starts... He, he, he spills the beans and kind of talks about all the things that he did. And he admits to a lot of the killings, gives them the details, helps them kind of, uh, you know, tie a a few things together. And they are able to, with using that information, I know like the the Claudia Benton murder, who was the physician that was found sexually assaulted, stabbed, that her her, uh, husband and child were gone Mm -hmm. around the Houston area. I know that is one of the murders that he committed that helped him uh, earn his way to death row, right? And so some of these, some of these things, he's going to admit to them. They're going to basically close the case out based on the confession. Some people are acquitted from crimes that they didn't commit based off his confessions, right? But either way, uh, Resendez is going to—he's not going because he's he turned himself in and. Because he, I'm sure, feels real bad about what he did. Not, no, not at all. And, but he's, he's put on death row. But, you know, you can't, you can't kill someone who's half man, half angel. No, you can't. Uh, He's, I believe he's seen by two or three different
1: like psychiatrists to evaluate him to see if he's competent to stand trial. And the first one is said he's, uh, believes him to be delusional because he's claimed to be a half man half angel he he views himself that he, uh, he's not scared of death because he's going to be eternal right um uh luckily that not everybody buys into that because the next psychiatrist says that he is more than competent to stand trial
0: yeah and i believe they get a, another opinion after that that's right, that's Yeah, like that, that they're like no he's just Yeah, two out of three, Your Honor. Yeah, he's just a psychopath. Yeah, he's just a psychopath. He's never going to change.
1: He's not delusional in the way that he's doing this motivated by anything but his own twisted machinations. Yep. Yeah.
0: And you can't be half man, half angel. Mm -mm. I'm sorry, but you just can't.
1: I mean, there are forms
0: of lore where those exist. Not Not in the Holy Bible. Not in the Holy Bible. And he said, he was a... He claims to be a very religious, very spiritual man. Yeah. Maybe he should have cracked that thing open. Well,
1: I think what you're mistaking is that he thinks that he is God Uh, and his religion. He's he's the Mac Daddy in his religion. (laughs) I can do what I want. I have the power over. That's right. He has the power over life and death. You know, if you're old uh, or weaker than him and caught alone, yeah, be afraid. He's Mm -hmm. very scary then.
0: Yeah. But I will tell you this. Resendez gets to take the ride down to uh, a place that we've talked about multiple times in this podcast, uh, the Huntsville unit in Huntsville, Texas. That's correct. Yeah. I heard it's a pretty small town. Basically, all it's there is prisons. hmm And on June 27th, 2006, Resendez does not escape death. No, he's no he longer- He literally dies.
1: Yeah, he's no longer eternal. No,
0: no, because he dies by lethal injection- at the Huntsville unit in Texas,
1: and that's a pretty quick turnaround for death row. Now, the, the suspect himself aside, what is it? His last kills are in '99. Um, yeah, so almost a little over seven years. Yeah, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Pretty quick turnaround. So he not only did he do a lot of confessing, but they did a lot of linking his crimes together. And as far as death row goes, that's pretty quick in mm-hmm. my and from what I've read.
0: Oh, it is. It is. It's very quick and. The, the only thing that I can think of is that he either didn't try to exhaust all of his appeals or there was some sort of deal struck where it took that privilege away, which in, you know, when we talked about the suitcase killer, mm-hmm. and that guy admitting, you know, taking a deal, admitting to the crimes and then pulling out of his own deal, mm-hmm. which ended up getting him put on death row and he couldn't appeal his, his convictions. And so he was put to death really quick. I don't know that that's the situation here, but I'm pretty sure that Resendez actually was like, Hey man, it's okay. I'm going
1: to make the cut. Don't worry about it.
0: Go ahead and send me up. And he, he does end up saying that he, that if, that he wanted to ask people if they could find it in their heart to forgive him. Of course he did that. And that, uh, that he he knew he allowed the devil to rule his life. He wanted the Lord to forgive him, and that again that he was mad that heard that he allowed the devil to deceive him. And he was thankful for God's patience with him. Uh, it, it, I don't know. You know, it's like one of those things where when when I when I hear his final statement, read his final statement, I'm like, I was I was baloney.
1: I, I wasn't even going to. Yeah, yeah. His last words don't matter. But it is interesting, because how frequent that happens when mm. people are put to death. but uh, what a total monster. And again, we have 15, 16 known victims. I bet there's more. people uh, yeah. that people that time literally took away their bodies to shadows and dust mm-hmm. bef- and they'll never be found. They've never missed enough marginalized victims possibly i'm just saying like we'll never know yeah but but there's so much his time jumps around so frequently i would wager that
0: he has a higher body count yeah and if he and after he made this confession admitting to all these crimes and then they had the physical evidence once he got a court-appointed attorney i'm sure they told him to zip it up Mm -hmm. pretty quick after that oh yeah and and we probably missed out on Figuring out all of the rest of his victims, but I, I guarantee you, there's a lot of unsolved murders out there that you could tie back to him.
1: Yeah, just from the amount of time and space he had to move about the country.
2: Hmm.
1: Hmm.
0: I I agree. When, so I think you know, for this one, we're going to go ahead and leave it there. You guys kind of got the gist of the story, and uh, we we really wanted to do this one. We're glad we got, we went ahead and got it. You know, checked off the list, mm-hmm. uh, despite. Uh, the other things that kind of came up in there, and sure, and uh, we thank thank everybody for for being patient with us with our schedules, and also, you know, sticking with us through, you know, some of the uh, ups and downs of our our personal lives that kind of go into our podcast life.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's not easy to for anybody to enjoy a hobby when they work so much. So I'm sure many <laughs> of you also understand what we're talking about, but we do very much appreciate your patience. And uh, also like normal, if there's anything we missed or something, another factoid that you have, anything like that, let us know because. Yeah. And I'm again, sure
0: there might be a handful in this one. Yeah. I know. Based I know off it's of been, the, like, a, like I said, I apologize. Like, like, the, I say. like I say, okay. The re some of the research didn't pan out and, I didn't have enough time to cross check it with some other things. And when I was doing that, I realized there's a few holes in this thing. And, uh, but that's okay. We can move on and we're going to bring you guys a good episode next week. Uh, we'll probably go back to the original format. I'll come back and do an episode and then Michael joined me the week after that. And, uh, we'll keep this thing rolling. So I thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. We will talk to you guys soon. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the murder project. Our numbers are going up, our downloads are going up and we have you guys to thank for that. If you're looking for us on any of the social media platforms, you can find us on Facebook. We're at the murder project, or you can type in facebook.com slash podcast TMP. If you're looking for us on Instagram, we are at the murder project. And if you're looking for us on Twitter, we are at the murder pod. Also, don't forget, go over to whatever platform you're listening on. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button if they have it. If you're listening to us on Spotify, hit that subscribe button. And also, leave us a five-star rating. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show. Leave us a review and hit that five-star. Let me get them five stars. And We thank everybody that has done that. And we appreciate it so much. If you have a longer form question or comment, you'd like to reach out to us. We do have an email address. That email address is contact at themurderproject.com. And as always, Mike or myself will get back to you. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. We look forward to speaking to you in the future. But before we go, please remember: head up, eyes up, and stay alive.